Hi, and welcome to Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm Marna Ashburn, joined by wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Marna. Hi, Mike. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with both of you. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you scrutinize your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Today we're going to talk about respect for others in language and conversation. But first, we're going to mix things up a little bit and start out with a listener question. This one comes from Michelle, and she wants to know, how did you get to be experts? I'll start on this one. First of all, I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be. I did write a small book called 64 Easy Answers About Etiquette for the Modern Military Spouse. But what I really am is a writer, researcher, and compiler of information. However, I'm fascinated with this topic of ethics and very interested in cultivating a conversation on ethical behavior and civility. And with the help of Kelly and Mike, we're doing it. With over a half century of life experiences each, We bring hard-won insights and perspectives and lessons learned to the subject. But none of us is perfect. We've all made mistakes and bad decisions, and so we come to this subject with humility. We're searchers and seekers on this path, too. I've learned a lot and clarified a lot since we started this conversation a few months ago. And I hope our listeners have, too. But I like to think of the three of us not as experts, but as facilitators on what is really a lifelong exploration on doing what's right. So I'm going to turn this over to Kelly, our lawyer on the panel. Okay, Marna. First about the half century thing. <laughs> I'd like to bring that down a little. Uh, Come on, Kelly. Just want to throw that out there to everybody. Sometimes you just got to accept it. <laughs> but um, anyways... I, I don't think we're experts. I certainly am not and um, and have learned a lot, you know, through my life experiences. What I would say about our podcast is the idea to, is to get us thinking and our listeners thinking about ethics, morals, kindness, and doing the right thing. Uh, it's about self-development and being mindful of what is happening and how to learn and respond. Very well put. Mike, did you want to say something? Yeah, um, I don't consider myself an expert either. You know, my life has been full of uh, full of failures, full of shortcomings, and uh, I'd say just as a comment that I often learn more from my failures than I do from my successes. But <laughs> so true. You know, I went to West Point, the military academy, and um, you know we lived under an honor code which says a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, or nor tolerate those who do. And, you know, so that was my early formation. Uh, Plus, by the way, some classes on etiquette where I learned which fork to pick up. And then, you know, into the Army and seeing, in 28 years in the Army, seeing, you know, the best and the worst of human nature in combat, not in combat. And so it's all of that that makes this topic so fascinating for me. And then here we are talking about ethics and etiquette. And the backdrop is a current uh, climate in our country, which is pretty charged, is pretty uh, passionate. Some would say is something not characterized neither by ethics nor etiquette. And so 
anyhow, I, I just am fascinated by this, and I'm really pleased to be a part of it. Well, I'm glad you're a part of it, too, and also you, Kelly. So let's move on to our first ethical dilemma. We're going to start today's session by talking about the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid. Now, I confess I've used this phrase in the past, but I didn't realize where it came from. It occurs to me that a lot of people might not know where it comes from. So let me just go over it. Drinking the Kool-Aid refers to the Jonestown Massacre, where 900 members of the People's Temple, who were followers of the Reverend Jim Jones, died after drinking or being forced to drink a beverage laced with cyanide. For the record, it was Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. Until the September 11th attacks, the tragedy in Jonestown on November 18, 1978, represented the largest number of American civilian casualties in a single non-natural event. That news kind of knocked the wind out of me when I read it. The unidentifiable or unclaimed bodies of more than 400 of Jonestown's dead, most of them children, are interred in a mass grave at an Oakland cemetery overlooking San Francisco Bay. Each year, a memorial service is conducted on November 18th. In the book, Dear People, Remembering Jonestown, survivor Mike Carter said he was deeply offended when he first heard the remark, drink the Kool-Aid. I thought, how can these people trivialize such a horrific event as the mass suicide murder of over 900 people? So now, drinking the Kool-Aid is now a ubiquitous cliche. In 2012, it was listed by Forbes magazine as the most annoying phrase in business. I personally won't use it again. But am I overreacting? Should we accept that the phrase has branched off into its own meaning, or should we clean up our language? Mike, what do you think? Well, you know, Marna, it's a double-edged sword. So I would tell you this. I'm a historian, and I pay special attention to how people and societies remember things. First of all, most people make no connection to Jonestown when they use that phrase. But if we stop using that phrase, then I would argue that that was 1979, this is 2019, we're 30 years down the line. Pretty soon this is going to fade into fade into the woodwork. No one will remember it. And, you know, perhaps, you know, I, I, see, the, I see the possible offense some people might take uh, with this phrase, but we don't allow anybody to use it or we make it unacceptable, as many phrases have become, we're just going to forget about that tragic event. So it's a double-edged sword. I fully appreciate the survivor's sensitivity, but it will be lost from American and world memory if we don't somehow have a reference to it in our language. Language is the way we often remember things. Yeah, I agree, Mike. Words matter. Um, they really do. But I think that you have to look at the facts and circumstances, and you always have to know your audience. I've had people say that to me before. Hey, Kelly, know your audience. Because um, uh, sometimes you can say stuff in front of one group, and it's funny and totally appropriate, and in front of another group, it falls flat. So, uh, you know, I think drinking the Kool-Aid is really a way to tell people, you know, not to follow mindlessly, you know, because I think what happened at Jonestown was followership at its worst, at its absolute worst. So, I mean, some might view it as a positive term to remind you, you know, think about things, be independent, you know, be an independent thinker. 
Now, obviously, you wouldn't use drinking the Kool-Aid in front of a Jonestown survivor. That's a mistake. <laughs> so yeah. know your audience, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, like I've heard people use the term Nazi to describe, you know, the way somebody's acting. Or um, I think you've talked about like a homeowners association, Marna. Right. Um, and I think that really gives somebody a picture of what that other person is struggling with. You know, some kind of totalitarianism, some kind of controlled situation that is just really negative, evil. And I don't see anything wrong with that. It's just a good way to describe things. I think we've taken political correctness too far. Now, there are some terms we just shouldn't use. And it wouldn't be appropriate, for example, to use the Holocaust to describe something that happened in your life or to describe a situation. Um, That's just wrong, you know, or to use um, somebody's faith or sexual orientation as an adjective to make something funny or to describe something. So it really does depend on the facts and circumstances. Okay, so know your audience. That is one of the principles of rhetoric, know your audience. But what I kind of get stuck on is do people even know what the phrase drink the Kool-Aid means? I mean, it's, we're 30 years after the event. 40 years, actually. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think Oops. I think some <laughs> I'm not a math major, but I'm just... <laughs> no, I'm Obviously, major. I'm not either. <laughs> no, I think a lot of people don't know, but they, do, they don't know the origin, but they do know what it means. One could argue that it's something positive that has come from Jonestown to make people think and to make people be their own person and not to follow another or an institution or a faith blindly. You know, that's that's a good thing. All right. Well, I see that point. But could we substitute a phrase like mindless adherence or robotic obedience instead of drink the Kool-Aid? Sure, but it's not as fun. It's, yeah, it's you not could, but it, it loses its punch, I would argue. Um, again, when used appropriately, um, and there are certainly appropriate times to use that phrase, in my opinion, because it is so visceral, if somebody understands what it really means. It is a visceral statement. Maybe because it disturbs me so much now is why I don't think I'll be using it. But I see what you guys are saying. I do. All right. Let's go on to the uh, other ethical dilemma right after this break. Welcome back. This is our second ethical dilemma, and we kind of poached this one from the New York Times ethicist column. Kwame Anthony Apia is the ethicist. What if your friends express racist, sexist, or xenophobic opinions in a conversation when you're all together in a restaurant setting? or in a group email chain, for example. You find it unacceptable, but do you say something? Do you call them out, or do you just let it go? Mike, why don't you tell us what you think? Well, I've said this before, but, you know, as I get older, I I guess I'm becoming more ornery and uh, perhaps just a little bit more self-assured. But, you know, if if somebody, you use the term friend, or maybe you said friends, if, if someone I consider a friend or a group of people I consider friends uses Could be that, work colleagues, too. Colleagues, okay. You, well, that, that sort of changes things. If they're my friends, I have a choice. I either no longer hang out with those guys and I give them a parting shot saying, hey, guys, that's uncool. Or I, I come in and, and say, listen, I, I just can't abide by this. This isn't right. I don't believe in it. 
I don't want to hang out with you if you're going to use this kind of language. And if that's the the way you think, then I uh, I may go, I, I may find myself elsewhere. Um, so that's kind of the friends. That would be how I would handle it. Colleagues is tougher, you know, because sometimes you can't choose the people you work with. And, um, you know, my experience, especially in the military, you don't get a choice. You've got to adapt and you've got to overcome somehow. So that's harder. I, I think... I just had this conversation with my daughter the other day, and she's uh, she's a Marine serving in uh, Southern California, and she had a tough, not quite ethical situation, but a you know one that perhaps is a mix of ethics and etiquette. And I said, you know, at some point you got to stand your ground. You gotta you gotta speak up for what you think is right, even if you're talking to your boss's boss. And um, I said, and people will respect that. And if they don't respect it, you know, then you just got to roll the dice and see what happens. So two different situations, one with the friend group, one with the colleagues. Kelly? Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, You know, racism, sexism, discrimination based on religion, sexual preference. I mean, it's all wrong and, and we know it is. But when to step in is complicated. You know, in a work situation, very complicated. In an everyday life situation, it can be complicated, right? In some cases, as, you know, Mike described, you might just choose not to be friends with someone. I can remember uh, when I was in law school, uh, this gal that I really liked, she was fun, she was funny. You know, we were walking out of the law school, and she made this really anti-Semitic statement. I, I couldn't believe it. I still remember it to this day about Jewish people and money, and it, it just was shocking. I, I said nothing, and we just left and said goodbye, and I really didn't go near her again, you know what I mean? Said a quick hello. That was it. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I, I didn't oppose her, but, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, I lost respect for her and just stepped away from her. So it can be, can be challenging. Um, my husband and I had a situation where we were with um, some older folks that we respected. I'm not going to provide all the facts and details <laughs> to try to keep it somewhat anonymous. You know, people that were older than us that we should respect. And really, two of them were saying horribly racist things. I mean, just stunning. I mean, to the point where it went on for like five minutes, which is a really long time. And my husband and I are looking at each other you know, we're both starting to almost be physically sick. Do we say something? Do we not? And thank God, the other older person kind of called them out, but in a joking way, and said, you know, hey, Johnny, you're not prejudiced, are you? And um, (laughs) everybody kind of laughed. Tiny bit of sarcasm there. Yeah, and that was the end of it. But I remember feeling, you know, like, shame. Like, should I have done something? I was trying to be respectful towards these people. So it was, it was a tough situation. Um, I, I do think that you do have to take a stand, and, and that's what people of character do. But I also think, and I know I'm talking a lot, but, but in our society, I also think we've become, you know, way too sensitive and way too much into political correctness. And, you know, I think that's got to stop. And I can think of examples of that, like, Andrew Yang, who's running for president, and um, and then I'll be quiet because I, I realize I'm monopolizing our time. You no, know. you're fine. You're no, fine. you're great, Kelly. But that comedian, you know, that got hired by SNL, Shane Gillis, 
you know, had really been edgy and, and said some, you know, really inappropriate things, right? But, I mean, a lot of comedians do. And again, it's know your audience. And, and that's really why they hired him. Then, you know, they find these tidbits out there from years ago, and they fire him. And a lot of the things he said, some were really making fun of Asians and some, you know, really kind of inappropriate things about Asians. And Andrew Yang was quoted, and I loved it. And he got, you know, he got skewered to some degree for it. But he was kind of like, look, we've got to look at, you know, the difference between a misstatement or something in a comedic context or another context and, you know, true advocacy of, of racist ideals. He kind of, uh, I wrote down what he said. He said, as a society, we've become unduly punitive and vindictive about people making statements that some find offensive or distasteful. And um, mm. wow. I, thought, I thought that was great. Well, back to the SNL comedian. I haven't seen any of his stuff, but it brings up a question I have. Is it humor or is it hostility? You know, Marna, that's a you're, it's a great big broad question you just posed. But I, I think let's go back to what Kelly said a while ago. Know your audience. If you go into a comedy club, clearly labeled comedy club on the outside, and you've got nine stand-ups over the course of an evening who are trying to make you laugh, I mean, there's going to be some stuff that you wouldn't want your mother to hear. Um, I guarantee <laughs> you. Okay. So do we outlaw all of that? I mean, the sexual humor, the ageism humor, you know, you name it. Go through any single one of the categories you listed a moment ago. Comics feed on that stuff. I would argue that there's a time and a place when some things can be said. Now, there are some red lines, and I don't think we want to find all the red lines in this podcast. But I agree with Kelly. If we disallow all of it, we've lost a lot of uh, color and texture in our, in our language and in our um, public discussion. If we lose all of it. Yeah, if we lose all yeah. of it. But I would argue that speaking up and saying to somebody who's using language, like Kelly mentioned, her older folks were using, saying, hey, I wish you wouldn't say stuff like that. It's, I find it offensive. That adds color and texture, too. A little abrasive oh, yeah. stimuli. I don't, I don't disagree in the least. Yeah, it does. I mean, but, but it's also important that people are able to express themselves, whether we like it or not. We can decide not to be around them. There is a First Amendment, and people should be able to express themselves. That's one of the things that really concerns me in our society today, like at colleges and universities. You know, they have so many safe spaces that people never hear anything different than what they're already thinking. That's a very bad thing. They call that hive mind? Yeah. That's that's bad. Um, we ought to, you know, we ought to be open to hearing and learning about everything, the bad and the good. The beautiful and the ugly. I mean, it, it should all be out there. Mm-hmm. And once we start restricting that, that's when we start to become a different society. And, and we don't want that. I mean, you know, another example is, you know, like, and again, I'm getting a little bit political, but, you know, recently, and I'm sure you guys read about, you know, that I guess President Trump had a big fundraiser out in California in Beverly Hills or something. And a couple of very prominent stars said, publish that list. Get it out there. We want to know who's there. You know, we don't want to work with. We want to know who we don't want to work with. Wow. And um, that's pretty draconian. Yeah. And very few people said anything. They just went along with it. But Whoopi Goldberg, who I really admire and, you know, I don't agree with her on a lot of things. But I mean, she was passionate 
And she was like, that is wrong. And she called out those actors. And she talked about McCarthyism and blacklisting and, you know, impacting people's ability to work. And that's not the world we live in in the United States. I mean, it was a beautiful thing to see what she said. And her point was, people can vote for who they want. They can have the opinions they want. And, you know, we ought not punish them for that. I had a situation years ago where I was um, sitting at a dinner with a bunch of people and the talk turned to our gr- our kids applying for college. And this guy said that his son went to MIT. He was an Air Force kid. And um, he said he really looked good in um, the DOD school systems because all the other DOD school kids were so dumb. He said, particularly the Army brats, they were really dumb. And, um, and then he said, he said it again, like, those Army brats, they're so dumb. The second time he said it, I said, I wish you wouldn't say things like that because my two kids are Army brats, and I don't think they're dumb. And he immediately was very contrite and apologetic. But I just, I just couldn't let that go. I thought it was yeah. just so out of bounds. Good play, Marna. Good play. Use I statements. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my folks were my folks were both teachers for eight years in the Department of Defense school system. So, thank you. Yeah. All right. We'll be back with another listener email right after the break. Today, I want to end with another listener email. By the way, keep it up. We love getting email from our listeners. You can send us email at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. There's also a phone number there if you'd prefer to leave a voicemail. This email is from Steve in Virginia, and it was prompted by our pet ownership episode, or pedicate as we call it. Here's his question. What if your dog poops in the street? Do you have to pick it up? What if it poops on hiking trails in the woods? Do you have to pick it up? Who wants to tackle this poop question? I'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> That's what I think. I mean, um, I don't know how it's different pooping in the street than it is on the grass. Uh, it's got nowhere to go, so you got to pick it up. <laughs> and um, we back up to some woods and, um, and a revolutionary battlefield, and I always pick up because I don't think... And I hate to talk graphically about poop, but here goes. Um, oh, no. It's, <laughs> How can it's, you not do that with poop? It's, it's, it's not like, um, you know, cow dung and other things. It really doesn't break down. So you, you really got to pick it up. You agree, Mike? I'm going to come back to Kelly in a minute. But, you know, this reminds me of uh, visiting my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law had gotten this brand-new dog and uh, cute little dog. And so I said, hey, I'll take the dog for a walk. And so I get the dog all leashed up, and we head out, and she's happy, and I'm happy, and we're walking through suburban Washington, and uh, she poops right in the middle of a crosswalk. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, great. Now, I'm, I'm equipped. I have, my, I have my bags and everything, but, you know, there's this little thing called traffic. So I'm going, all right, what the heck do I do now? So I got out of the crosswalk because, you know, the little uh, red man was blinking at me, stood on the curb, watched carefully, and then when conditions permitted, I scooted back with dog to the middle of the crosswalk, picked it up very quickly, and came back again. A harrowing, harrowing experience. 
But, well done. Well done. But, you know, I, I think it was important <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> I didn't want that uh, dog poop to get transported across state lines and right. the treads of a tire or something. <laughs> but I got to come back to Kelly. You know, I, I, you guys live in, you know, sort of like the civilized parts of this country. I wouldn't call us uncivilized here, but we are very remote. And uh, we literally have um, hundreds of thousands, millions of acres of undeveloped land very close by. I often go walking deep in the forest with my dogs. And if I'm way out there for a very long hike, like three, four, five hours, and a dog poops beside a mountain trail, I will push it off the trail, well off the trail, with a stick. And um, I will let it biodegrade because, yes, Kelly, it will biodegrade over time. Now, I never dump it into a water course. You know, I'll keep it away from water. But anyhow, that's just, just wanted to throw that out there. But well-used hiking trails like some of the parks around here. Oh, no, never. Yeah, I would never. say definitely yeah. clean it up. Yeah, we and have some trails where I think I'm the only guy who's been over them in the course of a year other than, yeah. other than hunters who kind of flood the woods in the fall. So, yes, if the dog poops on the street, you pick it up, but don't risk your life and limb to pick up the poop. Wait till the traffic's gone. And this reminds me of something else that came up after our pedicate episode is, where do you let your dog pee? And, Mike, you told me what curb your dog meant. Would you tell our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, it's um, ideally you go in the gutter. I mean, if you're walking your dog on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and... Uh, You've got all these lovely little plantings around every tree. The people there do definitely do not appreciate you letting your dog pee on their carefully planted flowers and shrubs. So again, context. But curbing your dog means you take your dog into the gutter. Gutters have this historical thing where that's how you wash streets. We don't see that much anymore, but... You know, it used to be that they would come and wash streets. You can still see it in Europe a lot, in old cities. Um, they just come down with a great big ve- a vehicle with great big hoses on the left and right front, and they just wash the street, and it all runs down the gutter. What about you? Do you have a dilemma related to behavior or language or something else you'd like to share with us? Go to our website and tell us about it. That's all for this episode of Ethics and Etiquette. Thanks for joining Kelly, Mike, and me. We love having you here. See you next week for an all-new episode.